do you believe in the church? And let me ask it a different way. Does it take faith to believe in the church? Now, at the beginning of our gathering, we, we started by reciting the Apostles' Creed, and we declared our belief in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And no doubt that in a culture filled with skepticism and doubt, we intuitively get that it, it requires faith to believe in God. It requires faith to believe in things that we can't see. So there's lots of people who don't believe that God exists or that maybe if he does, he's not really worth living for. But today in our creed, we also said, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Does it really require faith to believe in the church? Now, there's probably not any achurchists out there like atheists. Right? We know there are organizations and buildings and group of people called the church. In fact, if you didn't know, you're actually here among a church right now. Right? So why does the creed say, I believe in the church? I think that's because the creed calls us not merely to believe in its existence, that there are churches, but to believe in the mission and the vision of the church. And that does require faith. And today, just like at any other time in history, it requires faith to believe in the church. When we look at religion across America, every study, no matter who's doing it, affirms the same thing, that the religious landscape in America is changing. In fact, today, one out of three millennials, when asked to name and identify their religious identity, they check the, 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 the box at the bottom that says, D, none of the above to the point where now there's this new category of unbelief called the nuns. Not nuns with, you know, the head wraps, but nuns. There's no religious affiliation, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. We see that churches are closing their doors at alarming rates. And today when churches do make the headlines, there's usually some kind of scandal or pundit affirming what many believe, that the church has lost its place of relevancy in the world. We could keep going with more statistics, but we don't need them, right? We feel and experience the decline of the church in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, and our communities, leaving many with this vague identity where they've just simply said, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Maybe that's even a phrase you've used to describe yourself. And what's interesting is that though religious affiliation decreases, what hasn't changed is humanity's desire for meaning for purpose, for relationships, and a connection to something bigger than themselves. And this paradox prompted two Harvard Divinity students in 2015 to answer the question, with the decline of the church, where are people now going to satisfy these basic human desires and impulses for deep and meaningful connections? And what they found is that there are rising number of organizations and businesses that have found a way to fuse the secular and the sacred. They found a way to provide a service and yet fuse into it fellowship and personal reflection, even the idea of pilgrimage and discipline. There's liturgy, there's confession, even worship. One example that the study found as they were doing this cross-sectional um, study was uh, uh, looking at CrossFit. You've probably heard of CrossFit, seen CrossFit. There's a couple of them in Waltham, but it's a gym that offers more than just a workout. Listen to Allie. She's a local Boston gal. She's um, quoted in the Boston Globe describing her connection to CrossFit. She says, 
CrossFit is family, laughter, love, and community. I can't imagine my life without the people I've met through it. There's something raw and vulnerable that happens when you go into a CrossFit gym. A workout can bring you to your knees, so to speak. And she's not just talking about the physical exhaustion. She's talking about, in a sense, the worship and the community of CrossFit. One of the Harvard researchers said, quote, It's not that religion is dying. It's just changing. So we ask, who are going to be the providers of content and wisdom and community that's going to help people belong and become? Because that need is not going to change. The church is on the decline, not because we have an irrelevant message or an outdated God. The reason the church is on the decline is because we've lost sight of who we are in Christ and what it means to live that out with humility and authenticity. Brennan Manning said it really well. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. See, behind most people's atheism or rejection of the God or even disbelief in the mission and vision of the church is that Christians at some point in their life have let them down. They've become disillusioned with the church. Or perhaps they've been wounded by the church. And I know, because I know a lot of your stories, that's your story too. My hope this morning is to provide a clear and compelling vision for who the church is and why she is still God's plan to deliver his message of redemption and restoration to the world. We're going to look through the pages of scripture this morning to see the centrality of the church, the community of the church, and the call of the church, and hopefully recapture the vision for why the church is still God's plan to provide the only hope for people to belong and become in a way that's lasting and satisfying. So let's begin with the centrality of the church. Now, as we begin, I want to resurface a definition of the church that we looked at last year so that we're all on the same page, that when I say the word church, this is what I'm talking about. The church is the beloved and redeemed people of God, filled with the presence of God, set apart for the purposes of God in the world. Now, as we go throughout today's sermon, you're going to see different um, aspects of this definition filled out and supported by Scripture. Okay, so keep that definition in your mind. But for now, let's jump into 1 Peter chapter 2 so that we can see the centrality of the church. Now, look with me at verse 5. Peter says this. You yourselves, he's talking to believers, are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now jump down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, Peter is writing to Christians who have experienced suffering all throughout Asia, Asia Minor, which is now the nation of Turkey. That's where it is um, on the map. Now, at this time, this Asia Minor was made up of several distinct and diverse ethnic groups. Yet, geopolitically, they were under the control of the Roman government. 
Now, Peter, uh, at the beginning of uh, the book, gives him a paradigm for life. He tells him, listen, just as Jesus suffered and then entered glory, so too his followers will suffer before being exalted. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Christians will experience suffering. And now at this point in the letter, Peter reminds them of who they are. See, there's this principle. Our identity grounds us. When we think about who we are, it's the foundation that we stand on. And when we know who we are, then we know what to do. Our being informs our doing. It's a principle in scripture. It's hardwired into you. And so Peter tells them, believers, as the church, you are, and then he starts off with all of these metaphors. He says, you are living stones of a new temple and a holy royal priesthood. You are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Now we're going to spend some time looking a bit closer at each one of these metaphors because when we do, we're going to see the centrality of the church. So first thing Peter says is, you are a living stones of a spiritual temple and a holy royal priesthood. Peter says that each member of the church is this living stone. Now, collectively, together, we're being built up as a spiritual house, this new temple. When you build a building, it takes more than just one stone, doesn't it? Right? And it, he's saying all of us individually are these living stones, but together, collectively, we are a new temple. See, back in the Old Testament, you had to physically go to the temple in order to manage your relationship with God and to experience his temple. It was there that you presented offerings to the priest to make atonement for your sacrifice. Because this is reality that happens. When, when we commit sin, we incur a debt and we had to pay for that debt by our sacrifices. That's what the whole sacrificial system was set up for. But even in that system, there's grace, right? See, God doesn't have to forgive sins. The fact that he provides a way for forgiveness is, is in and of itself a gracious thing. God could just give everyone what we deserve. We commit sin and God could say, hey, you have to pay the punishment for it. But instead, God says, listen, the animal can pay the punishment, which is death, right? The wages of sin is death. But this animal can pay the penalty of death in your place and you can live and have forgiveness. See, God set up the sacrificial system not as a way to earn God's favor. See, God had already chosen Israel to be his people, not because of what they had done, but according to his own love. In fact, he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 7 just why he chose them. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. He wasn't saying you weren't some great nation and I was so impressed with you that I decided, hey, you guys would be great at being my people. He says, no, in fact, you were the fewest of all people. You were a puny nation. There was nothing about you that was impressive. I chose you, look at this, verse eight, because the Lord loves you. He just decided to put his love on them and make them a people. God chose them because he decided to love them. And because he loved them, he gave them the gift of the sacrificial system so that it would answer the question, how does an unholy people live with a holy God? The sacrificial system was a way for them to manage that relationship. It provided a way for the Israelites to experience God's grace and forgiveness. But now... In the New Testament, the sacrificial system is rendered obsolete. Why? 
Hebrews tells us that Christ is the sacrifice of sins once and for all. When Jesus died, he uh, removed the need for this ongoing sacrificial system. See, the blood of an animal could only go so far, but the perfect spotless lamb of God, Jesus himself, of infinite value, infinite worth, is infinitely able to cover a multitude of our sins. Jesus paid the price our sin demands, and so everyone who believes in Christ for his sacrifice has uh, that sacrifice attributed for your sin. So no longer do people have to come to the temple in Jerusalem to receive grace from God and to experience the presence of God. The sacrificial system, the temple itself, are no longer necessary and therefore no longer central to a person's relationship with God. That's why Peter says, now the church is the new temple. Now the church is filled with the presence of God. And instead of you having to go to the temple, now the church is sent out to you. The church is sent out into the world, all over the world, and bringing with them grace and presence of God to the nations. That's precisely Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 and 22. He says, you are built on the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and being uh, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, the church, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. See, without a physical temple, that means uh, the priests now are out of a job. Right? So now the church is this new temple. The priests don't need to make sacrifices anymore. And now Peter shifts the language and says, now the church is this new priesthood. That's the point Peter made earlier. He says the new priesthood offers spiritual uh, sacrifices, not physical ones anymore. So all of us as a royal priesthood aren't out slaughtering animals and offering them as sacrifices. There's no more physical sacrifices, but now we offer spiritual sacrifices. You see, the priesthood was originally set up to help people connect with God as they offered sacrifices on behalf of God's people. The priests were kind of like a mediator between the people of God and God himself. So what are the spiritual sacrifices that the church offers now? Well, it's interesting. Peter doesn't specifically say what they are, and I think he does so and leaves it general for a reason, because there's there's almost an infinite number of spiritual sacrifices that we can offer uh, to the Lord. As the Spirit transforms us into the image of Christ, we seek to love, we seek to serve, and we seek to bless each other in the church and as well as the communities in the world. So as you have opportunity to uh, put the love of Christ in action, you have an opportunity to offer a spiritual sacrifice that not only serves and blesses the people around you, but also honors the Lord. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2 and verse 10, for we, the church, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What Paul is saying is we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, but when that grace transforms us, it produces in us good works. And those good works are now the spiritual offerings, uh, the spiritual sacrifices of the holy royal priesthood, which is the church. 
We are not only the temple of God who are sent out into the world offering the presence of God into the world. We are also the priesthood. Now Peter starts to to mix these metaphors and pile them on top of each other. And not only are we a priesthood, but he uses that description word royal. We are a royal priesthood. Now why does he say that we're royal? Because we serve at the pleasure of the king of kings. See, we are part of his court. And as such, we owe him our gratitude, our allegiance, and our service. Do you see what he's doing here? What used to be central to the purposes and mission of God, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the temple, all of these are now being replaced by the church. But not only is the church a holy temple and a royal priesthood, Peter also tells us that we are a chosen race and a holy nation. See, this church becomes, the church becomes a new humanity and a new nation. Now, this word that Peter uses here for race is genos. It's where we get our word genetics, okay? And it, and it refers to those who have uh, come from a common lineage. Now, think about that. He's making a radical claim here. Peter is writing to a group of people who are ethnically and racially diverse, right? I, I told you this, uh, that Asia Minor had these um, distinct people groups. He lists them at the beginning of his letter. He writes to those who are in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They would have all had different upbringings. They would have had different traditions, different lineages, different family stories. And yet now, as the church, they're united and unified under a new lineage, the lineage of Christ. He says, you have new genetics now. You're a new race. Peter says, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, Greek, Roman, Cappadocian, Bithynian, whatever. Those who are born again to a living hope are now born into a new humanity through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we flatten our diversity as if it were unimportant or indistinguishable. By God's grace, I'm looking out right now at a, at, at, a, at a church that comes from different backgrounds and lineages and races and praise God. We don't want to become a colorblind church. But in addition, our racial diversity brings beauty to the church. However, Our unifying identity as a new race is now as God's people. God's people. So does that mean, um, what that does mean is that the church should be unified in our diversity because now we all share the same lineage. What now used to uh, uh, cause differences and might have caused division, we now say we have a higher uh, calling now as the new people of God. Our diversity is God's color wheel to paint a beautiful picture in this new humanity. But not only are we a new race, but we are now a new nation. See, Paul's also saying not only do you have a a lineage, but now you have a new identity. So you might be Roman citizens, but now you're citizens of God's kingdom, his holy nation. We're citizens of God's kingdom with all the responsibilities and privileges that come with being faithful citizens of that kingdom. And now we bear allegiance to that king and live in light of this new citizenship, this new, the new laws and morality that come as members of a new nation. 
You see, what used to be one people group localized in one nation, the Jewish people in the nation of Israel, is now expanded to include many nations, diversified to include many distinct people groups, and unified as a new humanity, as a new nation called the church. You see what he's doing? He's saying all the things that used to be central to God's purpose and mission are now being fulfilled in the church. He goes on to say, you are now a people of God's possession. You were once not a people. There was nothing that defined you and and distinguished you as a people, but now you are a people. Why? Because you have received mercy from God. Did you know that from the beginning of creation, God has always desired to create for himself a people who would bear his image, reflect his uh, his glory, and enjoy him. But then sin entered in and fractured humanity. But God's plans and purposes would not be thwarted by our sin. God's plans and purposes to create a community for himself, to share in his love, will not be thwarted. And they're being fulfilled right now in the church. And so God has been at work since the beginning to create for himself a people with representation from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So how did God go about doing this? Peter tells us he decided to show mercy and create for himself a new people. He says before, there was no unifying principle that could bring a group of people together like this before. See, communities need something to bring them together. No matter what community you're a part of, it doesn't matter. There's some kind of unifying principle that transforms just a mass of people of unrelated individuals into a cohesive, uh, bonded group right? A community needs something that transcends, transcends all of their differences and unifies them in a way that their differences now don't matter as much as what brings them together, right? That's what a community is. You, they're, they're, and, and Christians aren't the only people who've created communities, right? There's all kinds of communities in the world, and you look at that group of people, and they have differences, yet there's one unifying principle where everyone collectively says our differences don't matter as much as the thing that binds us together. So Peter tells us what that unifying principle is for the people of God. It's simply this, that God has decided to show them mercy. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are people because God has shown you mercy. And in his grace, he makes them a people who are marked by his presence, who live for his purpose. That's it. That's what makes the church. God shows up and calls the individuals who make up the church out of darkness into his marvelous light. And there's no other reason for it except that God decides graciously to extend mercy. God's people are a chosen people of his own possession who have received mercy for no other reason than God's gracious initiative. Now think about all these metaphors we've just quickly walked through. What do they all have in common? What they have in common is that they're all collective words, right? It takes many stones to build a temple, not just one. You can't can't build a temple with one stone. It requires many people to make a new race and a holy nation, right? There's no such thing as a nation of one. People can't become people without at least two, right? It's got to be a plural thing. The priesthood was made up of lots of priests. The people of God is a plural word. 
God saves and redeems individuals, and in his love, he does not call them to go live life alone. He calls them to participate as a cohesive collective called the church. All of the Old Testament structures that were pivotal to a person's relationship with God are now fulfilled in the church. Right? We saw in 1 Peter that he said uh, the church is now the temple, a holy royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, and the people of God. All of those are now centralized in the church. And those are just some of the metaphors. The Bible uses other metaphors to describe the church. In the book of Ephesians, the church is described as the bride of Christ. And you ask the question, how much does Jesus love his church? He loves her like a husband should love his church. The church is also described as a family. We are adopted sons and daughters of God and members of his household. The church is described as the body of Christ. We are joined to Jesus as his body, every member working together to fulfill the purposes of God. And you see the scriptures listed here. I encourage you, write those down. A good uh, devotional this week would be to look at how um, the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the church. We are joined to Jesus as his body, every member working together to fulfill the purposes of God. You see, the biblical authors go out of their way to throw metaphor on top of metaphor on top of metaphor so that you cannot miss it. The church is central to living out what it means to be a Christian. If we are going to get a vision for who the church is and why she is still God's plan to deliver his message of redemption and restoration to the world, we have to see that the church is central to that vision. You can't get around it. Next, we need to see how the community of the church provides a clear and compelling witness and picture of God's vision. So not only do we have the centrality of the church, but we also have this, uh, the community of the church. You see, because the church is central to God's mission, it's critical that the church doesn't self-destruct, right? If God is using the church to fulfill his mission, then we need to be strong and sturdy. And that's the point that Paul makes in the book of Ephesians. And to do that, as he opens up his letter, he first describes and details how God has secured all of our individual salvation as a gift of grace made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Look with me. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So that's God's um, gracious initiative to save us. That's the gospel. We are saved by the gracious initiative of God. His love is what causes dead people to become alive. Then Paul starts to build on that gospel foundation with what we call gospel implications, right? Because the gospel is true, there's all sorts of things that become true and are critical to the mission of God. If God saves and redeems us and causes us to be born again to a living hope put together in the church, then what are the implications of that truth? One of those is the unity of the church, which is displayed in our community. That's one of those beautiful gospel implications. Look with me at Ephesians chapter four. See, Paul's now building out. If the gospel is true, then what else is true? That's where he's going with this. Ephesians chapter four. 
I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now let's follow Paul's argument here. Paul says, when you really understand the gospel and live a life that declares and delights in the gospel, your life will be one that displays the gospel, right? He's saying when you uh, declare the gospel and you delight in it, eventually your life starts to display it. People can see the gospel in your life. And one of the most distinctly Christian markers of the gospel is Christian unity on display in the community of the church. Now, why is that? Remember, the church is not made up of a single people group or a niche community centered around some kind of hobby or skill like other kinds of communities in the world. The church is the body of Christ organized and centered on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the organizing principle of the church. That's what Peter was saying. That's what Paul is saying right here. The church is by definition a diverse people, a group of people from every walk of life. That's why the church should be made up of young and old, rich and poor, literally from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The only prerequisite for membership in the body of Christ is that you're a human being who acknowledges your need for Christ. That's it. It doesn't matter your pedigree, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter how skilled you are, how intelligent you are, how much money you make, none of those things matter. You just have to be human and recognize your need for a savior. That's it. While that makes us a beautiful mosaic, right? That means that everybody can be a part of the church. It also presents a threat. With all of that diversity, it means that at any moment, there's a whole host of things that could divide us, right? The church, and when it's divided, cannot be focused on her mission. See, when we're self-imploding, uh, when, we're, when we're having to uh, uh, fix the, the problems inside the church, we can't be focused on things going outside of the church. When the attention is on addressing divisions in the church, we cannot be making disciples, I saw this video, maybe you saw it circulating around the internet, and there were these two antelope, and they're fighting, and they're probably fighting over a, uh, a female. Uh, that tends to be uh, common, right? And they're busy fighting each other. And these two bulls were kind of ramming each other, and at some point, their horns became entangled, and they couldn't get out, and so they're, they're trying to go back and forth. And at first, it's kind of comical, it seems like no big deal, but then the video kind of pans out, and you see a lion running at them off in the distance. Now, all of the other antelopes scatter, right? They hear, they see what's coming. And, and, and you're starting to go, oh man, are these guys gonna get unlocked? But they're completely unaware that pending danger and doom and death is coming because they're so focused on their disagreement. And by the time they realize it, it's too late. And it's a perfect illustration of how disunity can be deadly. And the church is no different. That's why the New Testament spends so much time talking about preserving unity. As you read through the New Testament, it comes up in almost every single letter. Now think about this. 
The letters of the New Testament weren't written hundreds of years after the church. It wasn't like the early church experienced hundreds of years of this honeymoon period where everybody was just getting along. Some of the earliest New Testament letters come 10 and 20 years after the ascension of Christ. What that says to us is it doesn't take long for roots of disunity and bitterness to start driving the church apart. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, Guys, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, if you have any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There was already in the Philippian church disagreement and bitterness. Look what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Jesus said it really clearly in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus said, you want to know how people will know if you're following me? by how well you love one another. He tells the disciples, the world will know that you are mine if you have love for one another, which means people should be able to look inside the church and see how we love one another and go, what could possibly be bringing this group of diverse people together in such a unifying, God-glorifying kind of way? Not only is our unity good for each other, right? When there's unity, it's helpful. We're helping each other. There's joy and gladness. But Jesus is saying our unity actually helps us accomplish our mission in the world. So as we delight in Jesus' love, Jesus is saying we should display his love. As we delight in God's love, it should put Jesus' love on display for people to see. So what are some of the things that potentially could divide our church. I mean, we could go on and on. I'm going to list a few here. We can be divided by our preferences, such as how to do church. Many churches have split over a disagreement of how to do church, arguing over what ministry philosophy is best, what different types of music is best, preaching styles. I mean, honestly, the list goes on and on. Sometimes there's even just personal preferences of how we like to spend our time and our money. This is really anything where we elevate one of our personal preferences to this level of ultimate, that if it's not done this way, I'm taking my ball and going home. It's, a, it's the kind of heart that says every hill is one to die on and makes everything a matter of utmost importance. Another thing we can divide, be, be divided by is politics. Hello. As hard as it might be for people on either side of the aisle to hear, as the people of the church work out their faith and work out theology in the political arena, people might actually land on different sides of the aisle in terms of parties, platforms, and policies. The reality is that we live in a broken world, and issues are often far more complicated and complex than the talking heads would let on. And as thoughtful Christians, we might land differently on issues, but that should not divide and destroy the church. Now, you're certainly responsible and held accountable for the decisions you make, but at the end of the day, politics should not divide us. We can actually disagree 
without division. It's possible. Another way we can be divided is by race. Sometimes a well-intentioned person can unintentionally be insensitive and cause tension. That happens, right? Sometimes people can be wrongly or too easily offended. And sometimes it's much worse than that. Sometimes deep-seated racism can creep into the church and cause hurt and extreme polarization. And you might be thinking, no, 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 not in the church. Listen to me. Yes, yes, it happens all the time in the church. And it's evil and it's wicked. And not wicked good, I mean wicked bad. And it divides us and it destroys us. We can be divided by gender. Men and women can be at odds, right? That happens all the time, not just in our homes, but even in the church, as we figure out how to live together in community and serve alongside one another so that uh, as, as we fill out our various roles and responsibilities. We can be divided by age. Simply put, generational gaps can make it hard for people to understand each other and listen to each other. And we can be divided by per interpersonal relationships. Sometimes we allow envy, jealousy, and comparison to drive us apart. We're far too easily offended. And instead of preemptively forgiving each other, thinking the best of one another, assuming people have good and right motives, we get bitter and get divided. And then all the gossip and the chatter and the roots of bitterness start driving deep. And before you know it, this beautiful gift of unity is destroyed. So how do we preserve unity so that the church thrives as a life-giving and attractive community? Well, Paul gives us a recipe. He tells us humility, which means not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself and your own interest less often. He also says gentleness, which is not weakness. doesn't mean you, you get uh, trampled on, but gentleness is a reserved spirit that seeks peace. He also says we could use a bit of patience, right? Slow to speak and quick to listen. He also says we should bear with one another in love. That means giving each other the benefit of the doubt and asking in any situation, how do I best love this person. And then Paul says, we need to remember the bond of peace that we have in Christ. All of these came out of Ephesians 4. We read them earlier. See, in Ephesians 2, Paul talks about how Jesus is the peace that breaks down walls of hostility. In his day, uh, when, when Paul was writing this, Jews and Gentiles were constantly at odds with each other. They were divided along every single category. And as the gospel spread throughout uh, the, the ancient world among Jews and Gentiles, the church had to figure out how are we and our differences going to display the unity of Christ. And Paul tells them it's Jesus. The answer is Jesus. When we remember that we have Jesus in common, every other division pales in comparison. We are supposed to live together in such a way that when people look inside the windows of the church, they wonder what could possibly cause this group of people who are so diverse to eat together, to gather together, to worship together, to live together, and, to, and die together. That's why the creed says, I believe in the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints. This is not an open endorsement of the Roman Catholic church. In fact, that word Catholic just means universal. 
The creed was even established before the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic means universal. What, it, what it's getting at is that there is one church because there is one Lord, one Christ, and one body. Because the gospel speaks to every single human, because the gospel is, uh, because the church is God's medium for his message, the church is universal. And as we display that unity, we actually start to live like a community that's marked by humility, gentleness, and patience. So when people see our communion, the union of our community, it becomes a powerful witness to the binding and healing love of Christ. Now let's quickly look at the last call of the church as we pursue his mission together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to, ex- to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As we, pick, as we finish this morning, we're picking back up in Peter's train of thought where we began um, in our sermon. Remember, he's already laid out how the church has become central in God's mission. So no longer is the focus on the temple or the priesthood. The focus now is on the mission of the church. In verse 9, he said that God made us a people for his own possession so that we would proclaim the excellencies of God. What that's saying is we've been blessed to be a blessing. We've been delivered to participate in the deliverance of others. We've been shown mercy so that we can help show mercy to others. And he concludes his thought by giving us one final identity marker to help us navigate our calling. He says we're to live as sojourners and exiles. Pastor Timothy Keller in Manhattan, New York, provides a helpful way of thinking about what it means to live as sojourners and exiles. He says we're to be like people, unlike people, and we should engage. Look at, listen how he describes it. He says, we, speaking of Christians, will have an impact for the gospel if we are like those around us, yet profoundly different and unlike them at the same time, all the while remaining visible and engaged. Now, when you hear the word sojourner, don't think vacationer. Don't think about someone who, uh, who goes on a vacation. That's not the word here. A sojourner might live in a foreign country for an extended period of time. An exile was taken out of their homeland and was set, setting up shop in a foreign country. So they would buy homes and start businesses. They'd send their kids to schools and they'd set up their entire lives. But all the while they knew, I am not in my homeland. I'm living in a foreign country. That's the life of the Christian. We are not home. God's kingdom has not been fully established here on earth as it is in heaven. We are not fully and completely benefiting from all of the rights and responsibilities and privileges that will come to us as citizens of the kingdom of God. So with whatever time God has given us between now and then, we're to live with this identity as sojourners and exiles. So we should set up shop. We should live here and dine here and build relationships with people, but never forgetting where our true citizenship lies. And so that category, we need to be like the culture that we live in. There needs to be some semblance that we uh, fit here. So we eat the food here. We drink the drink here. We participate in the culture around here. You should be enough like your neighbors that when they see you, they go, hey, we've got some things in common. They should be able to see some similarities around you. 
We should seek to be skillful and diligent and resourceful in our work, in our communities, in our daily lives. There should be something where uh, an unbeliever looks at you and says, hey, there are some things about them that, that are like me as well. But at the same time, there should be ways where they look at us and say, but there's also something different about them, right? Their belief system, their values, their, their worldview is shaped a little bit differently than mine. So what that means is there's going to be times where we abstain from the things in our culture that they uh, uh, joyfully imbibe. We should be honest and generous and fair and hospitable. We should be a people who are forgiving, not holding grudges. We should be gracious. We should show love to the unlovable. We should be countercultural enough that people look at us and say there's something different about their lives, right? There's a tension there. There should be enough of similarities that they go, hey, in a lot of ways they're like me, but hey, in a lot of ways they're different. They should be able to notice a distinguishable different. And that's what it means for the church to be holy. Holy doesn't mean unrelatable and judgmental. The word holy means set apart for a purpose. And we are set apart. We are the holy church set apart for the purposes and mission of God. We should live in such a way that as people respond to, uh, that, that they see us responding to adversity and triumphs differently. They should see that there's something different about our lives. And finally, we should be engaged. If we're going to proclaim the excellencies of God to the world around us, that means that we actually have to have real, meaningful, non-superficial relationships with our neighbors, our colleagues, and friends, and family. We should actually be friends with them, not pretend friends with them. So that means you know their names, you know their stories, that they would invite you to their birthday parties, right? You're actually friends with them, which means you're going to have to take interest in the lives of people around you, maybe your neighbors or people who work in the office or the cube next to you. That means being intentional and and being members of a community, volunteering, um, uh, maybe coaching in a local little league, whatever the case may be, using the gifts and talents God has given you to be meaningfully engaged in the world around you. And when that happens, we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The gospel is a ministry of word and deed. It requires both our words and our lives, and that's the call of the church. We are to be a people who not only delight in the love of Christ, but who also display the love of Christ.